This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode three of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. With Trump now being confirmed coronavirus positive, it begs the question, what happens when a US president is too sick to work? We see France and Italy hit by the severe storm Alex floods. And what about the 200 volunteer hackers protecting the up and coming US elections? And is Boris Johnson finally turning green? Who knows in this weird and wacky vacuum we're living in? On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. So we're recording our audio locally, which is phenomenal, and that will give us the best quality. So then I can edit pretty, pretty good there. I know every time I do these, I uh, we're speaking with somebody and I put my headphones on. I feel like they think I have earmuffs on. That's the voice of my guest this week, Ryan Stelzer. He's the co-founder of a company called Strategy of Mind. Ryan poses the question, do you fake it till you make it? We turn that upside down and give you a new mantra of one, two, three. Ryan also takes us on a journey through the philosophy of the ages and how it most definitely applies to our current workplace. If it's good enough for Aristotle, Plato, and Google, then it's got to have some merit. We talk about Boeing 737's max strategy and the reality of a four-day working week just by using philosophy in the workplace. I started by asking Ryan what strategy of mind was all about. I was hoping you could tell me. <laughs> I love that. Typical philosopher, you know, they're always the same, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I could, but you know what's lovely about it is it always like to hear it from the horse's mouth. So I'm going to give you the challenge. Go Absolutely. So we provide uh, sort of pretty straightforward strategic consulting services and organizational development services to um, medium to large size companies operating around the world. That's the boring description of what we do. Um, but really what we're doing is we're bringing um, philosophical techniques and tools uh, to the workplace, uh, perhaps in a bit of a Trojan horse or subversive way, because we're not going in and saying, hey, we're doing philosophy and here's a philosophy seminar, but we're using the tools of philosophy to help businesses improve. And that's, that's you know, and when I say businesses improve, it's not just bottom line, which we do. We, we, we try to help companies grow and flourish and, and become more successful every quarter. But uh, we're also trying to help the individuals that comprise those businesses improve as well. So as strategy of the mind, how do you go about that? What kind of uh, principles and, and procedures have you put together that you've, that have proven to be very successful in your mind? Yeah, so the core, the, the, the core aspect of any of our services, whether it's doing that strategic plan or whether it's um, leading workshops or doing lunch and learns, you know, whatever, the, whatever our type of engagement might be, um, the root of everything is dialogue. And that is the principle of philosophy. Socrates, you know, would talk to people around the street and in the marketplace in Athens. And we tried to bring that same approach to, to all of our, uh, our professional services in that we have dialogue be the core of what we do. And the reason why is because, um, you know, Google's Project Aristotle found that psychological safety is the key to organizational performance. And how do you build psychological safety? Well, you have these uh, sort of environments where people are free to share ideas, ask questions, engage in conversation. And so what we're doing is we're 
were the, you know, the core, no matter what, no matter what um, service we're offering at, at any given time, we're trying to ensure that it's rooted and, and the foundation of it is dialogue. That's very interesting, actually, because, you know, in our modern world, we find that dialogue actually can be frowned upon a little bit. You know, it can be something that can sound dissenting sometimes in the business environment and over a period of time and I don't know if it's just recent you know it might be in my imagination but in the last I would say 10 15 20 years dialogue has become very restricted I think within business it used to be much more freeform before that am I imagining that or is that sort of the feelings that you get based on the research that you've done so it's hilarious because every time we speak with a new company and we 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 engage in active inquiry, we're engaging dialogue with them uh, on, on our initial phone call, and we ask what some of the pain points are, what some of the challenges are. And of course, every organization thinks that their challenges are unique. They're not, but every every company has these. Oh my gosh, you're never going to guess what what it's like here. And I just say, oh, tell me what it's like there. I can't imagine how different it is. And um, the the one thing that always always comes up is the word communication. And I'm sure that every business would say that we could improve our communication, whether that's via email or around the office or in the water cooler. Uh, communication is key. Uh, so we just took a spin on that word and converted it into dialogue because communication is not necessarily dialogue. Communication can be a directive order from your boss, and that's not exactly uh, an engaging conversation. So um, companies, large medium, small, um, old, new, you know, doesn't really matter. They all can, every, every, every organization can improve communication. Even the, even the, the most, uh, psychologically safe and, um, um, dialogue heavy companies can improve their communication techniques. But, um, really what we're seeing is that over the last 15 to 20, maybe 15, 20 years or so, it has that there's this emphasis on communication, but it's no one's necessarily asking the question is, well, what does it mean to communicate? Does that mean um, streamlined emails or fewer emails? Does that mean uh, addressing the meeting topics at the beginning of a meeting? That way we're not just talking in circles. Um, what does effective communication mean and look like? And so we try to uh, really try to hone in on the skill of, of talking and listening. What is it? What is active inquiry? That's, that's the core of dialogue, active inquiry. And, you know, what does that mean? I think many, many years ago, and again, you can maybe talk to this, communicating was very, very different. It was very much top down um you know you were directed there was very much a structure to work which you know, the baby boomers the people of my age and there were 50s now we were very used to um and it felt very safe you know you had a direction you knew what your job was you carried out that job and you completed something and there was a sense of completion there was a sense about do a good job what do you think has really happened what's metamorphosized over that period of time to make it feel as if lack of communication, lack of direction, maybe a lack of feeling wanted or even valued within the, the workspace. What's, what's going on there, do you think? I would say that um, the, perhaps the best term to use to describe it is short-termism. Um, uh, another way to think about it is bottom-line thinking or uh, quantitative thinking. And what happens is, what, what it seems to be the case, is that um, businesses are are so focused on those quarterly numbers, those quarterly metrics and hitting those targets and those numbers. And they, they just forget the big picture and they forget the long game. And it's so, it's so intent on, okay, what are we going to do this quarter as opposed to what are we going to do over the next five years? And as a result, that sort of big picture thinking goes by the wayside and everyone likes to think of themselves as a big picture thinker or outside the box thinker or creative thinker. But really we're so beholden to this sort of shareholder mindset of bottom, you know, the bottom line value. And I think that's just been 
um, that's trickled down from top to bottom and employees are sort of, they're, they're really, they're forced to drink the Kool-Aid when they get on board because it's, it's, it, you know, it's uh, on board or off board. You know, you make a really great point there. And I felt that in my business life is that I wasn't necessarily somebody who would want to drink the Kool-Aid. I was very much a out of the box thinker. What's the solution to this problem here? What does it feel like? You know, what, what's our gut telling us, you know, from the experience that we have as a team, why don't we try something different? So all of those things kind of go against the grain. And I find that very much has happened in business in recent years. So, okay, if you're an independent thinker, how does philosophy help you, do you think, and your team get ahead? It's a great question. So um, <laughs> chances are, if you are an independent thinker, you're already a, a philosopher of sorts. Um, there is a, a, a false egregious lie that in order to be a philosopher, you have to be this really old white guy with a beard. Um, and moreover, there's an, an even worse lie that you have to have pursued some sort of academic career in philosophy uh, or pursued a degree in philosophy and then, and then transitioned elsewhere. So that's false. Uh, philosophy is really for anyone who asks any sort of big question or any sort of question, to be honest. We all engage in philosophy every single day of our lives, uh, whether that's having conversations with our peers, whether that's, you know, reflecting on some, on some big picture items. Um, so right off the bat, I would say every single person is a philosopher and they just don't necessarily know it or wouldn't identify themselves as such. And so if you, if you do feel as though you're an independent thinker, um, one of the best techniques and which we advocate for, and I mentioned is active inquiry, and that is, uh, accepting the fact that maybe it would be good to have a conversation with somebody sitting next to me about the ideas I have running around in my mind. So if I'm an independent thinker and I have these concepts and I have these things that, wow, these are really original, I'm really proud of these ideas, or maybe I'm really nervous about these ideas, um, at some point or another, you have to share them. And uh, the, if, if you're looking for one step as an independent thinker, what's one thing you can do? It, it's pulling someone aside, grabbing coffee and just saying, hey, what do you think about this? And then just sharing that idea and having an open, honest conversation. That's psychological safety. It's feeling comfortable and trusting the person enough to have that, that exchange where you can share your idea without fear of judgment or reprisal. I loved what you said about everybody's a philosopher. That, that really got to me because... I said to my good lady, Tracy, yesterday, you know, I said, I'm not a philosopher. I really can't think on that level. She says, of course you are. You know, you, you think outside the box. You're a blue sky thinker. You're the, the ideas guy. You know, you bring in that left field thinking. I said, well, I never thought of myself like that, you know. I remember we wrote an article and I got an email from this woman in Istanbul who was working as an administrative assistant. And it was it was sort of a... Uh, it had a depressing sound to the email, sort of a, a different tone than the emails I usually get. And she was just feeling really down about the fact she said, I studied philosophy in school and I feel like I've totally betrayed my degree and I'm not engaging in philosophy now and I'm working as an administrator and uh, I'm not practicing philosophy. And I, you know, I just wrote her this long email back and explained, yeah, you are. <laughs> um, uh, are you asking questions? Are you still having conversations with people? Are you, I mean, are you thinking about these sort of, um, these, these types of topics? You don't need to be, Certainly, you don't need to be in academia to be a philosopher. Uh, in fact, most people in academia aren't philosophers. They're history. They're historians. They study. They study philosophers and they tell the story of philosophy. Um, they're they're you know intellectual history, and that's that's great and that's fine. That's well. That's we need that. Um, but the actual act of philosophy is in, is very democratic, and it is something that everybody can do. I love that expression. The act of philosophy is very democratic, and that really appeals to me. Um, because that's what it should be, because to bring the best out in people, 
you've got to put them in an environment where they feel safe and they can voice their opinions and have those really difficult discussions or they're good discussions because that's what it's all about isn't it it's about the yin and the yang the balance to the conversation and then coming up with something at the end of it and trying it and if it doesn't try well let's go back to our original conversation try a different avenue absolutely so we uh we had led a workshop for a company uh it was a real estate company and there was a big company gathering, it was an all-hands meeting, and the company did this really amazing thing where they invited their their custodial staff. Now, ordinarily, when we go to company meetings and all-hands meetings, the custodial staff is not there. Um, it's usually just the folks who sit at the desk. And the reason why they invited their maintenance technicians was because it's a, it's a property management firm. They, they manage a lot of buildings, and these folks are on-site a lot, so they wanted them to be there and working with the property managers and having that conversation. So anyway... So, you know, the, we, ha- we, we get started and we ask the question, our favorite question is, you know, one of them is, well, what keeps you up at night? And the accountants gave accounting answers, you know, well, I'm worried that the numbers aren't going to be where they need to be. The lawyers gave legal answers. I'm worried about um, um, these sorts of challenges we're facing. And so we went around the room and all of the uh, employees were, were seated by their role. So the accountants were at one table, lawyers were at another. And um, finally, we got to the custodian table. And a guy stood up and he said, uh, the thing that keeps me up at night is loss. And the room kind of went silent and, and we said, well, what do you mean by that? And we, you know, we practiced some active inquiry and turns out, um, the, the buildings that this company manages are primarily, um, uh, at, uh homes for elderly folks, elderly patients. So assisted living facilities and, and the like. And oftentimes, you know, they're dealing with 98 year olds who have no family left um, who are living there alone, who feel very lonely and isolated. And these custodians are their family and their friends. So uh, we had this guy was telling a story about how he became really good friends with an, a local resident um, because she would always ask him to open her pickle jar. So, hey, would you mind just opening the pickle jar in the fridge? And he'd come in and he'd fix a light bulb, fi- open the pickle jar. They'd talk about her medical appointments or, you know, sports and what have you. And she was 98 and inevitably, you know, things happened. And he was he was really grief stricken by it. And he said that the biggest challenge to his work as a custodian was grief <laughs> at this meeting. And everyone was sort of taken aback by that. And the company hired grief counselors. And it was a really positive outcome as a result of his sharing that. But the, the, the company had the courage to invite the custodians and provided a space for them to share their ideas without being judged. And he was uh, not a guy that you would expect it to be. He was a big, burly guy, you know, tattoo. It was not who you'd expect to talk about grief. And it was, he stood up and said it in front of everybody. You know, that's a really interesting point is you created an environment of safety where somebody could express that within that company. And for me, those little, again, those nuggets of gold that come out of those conversations are just, you can't put price on them, you know. But the lovely thing about it is that somebody who you have a preconceived idea about is sharing those raw emotions from the soul. And that's really where it comes from. If people can do more of that, then that gives people confidence to be able to share themselves. You know, it's, it's an ongoing process, isn't it? Chances are, if you think back on the best places you've worked, it's a feeling that you have about the places that you work. You feel that they were the best. There's no, you can't, you don't, I'm, you, you probably don't have the quarterly report from that year where the company was doing really well that you can pull out and say, see, this was a great place to work. 
it's something that you remember and a feeling and emotion that, that's that's stayed with you. And you thought, well, that was a really positive environment in which I worked. You know, that was a really friendly environment. I really had great relationships. Or maybe that was a really free thinking environment, um, a forward thinking environment. And it, the the thing about these types of performance questions are, it's it it boils down to something a bit deeper than the numbers. And you got to get to that. And, 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 you know, it's almost it takes you back to your childhood, what it felt like to do enjoyable things or scary things. You know, what did that feel like to grab mum's hand across the road? I felt safe and it made me, it reassured me. We got to the other side, but it was an experience. It sounds really minuscule, but you remember those feelings. It's like they say the senses, isn't it? The smell is the number one that takes you right back. But it's also sensations and feelings as well that take you back to those the kind of it's almost like the core of being a human being, isn't it? It's shocking to think that yeah, we're not automatons. We're actually human beings at work. They, I think, companies treat us as though we are. Um, well, yeah, we're, we're they, the, one of the words I heard was physical plant. We are we are truly human resources. We are resources from which a company can extract value. But ultimately, we're human resources, and that involves more that we're not we're not chairs. We're not desks. Um, there's more complexity to us. And ultimately that human experience is what defines us and, and can help us grow. Totally. And, and I know that um, from my personal experience of being in business, probably in the last 10 years, maybe 15, is there were many companies that were coming out with a strategy that we can make everybody an A, B or a C player. We can cookie cutter them. And this is how you're then going to take your business forward and, you know, get rid of the C players, bring in the A's and B's, and you'll have a successful business. And little did they realize that, that what they cut out of their equation was the great C players that come to work every day. They do the job they're supposed to do. They're the support, the, you know, a bit like the environment you were in with the office company or the, the company that was doing the uh, property business. You had those people that were at the coalface doing the work, the pragmatists, the people talking to the old ladies, helping to get the jar lids off. You know, you forget that that's part of being a human being. And if you cut that out of your business, what do you get left with? You get the people that think, the people that don't practically do the work, and then you you lose the soul to the business. That's that's what I found. Absolutely. Yeah, there's... there's, um uh, the the best companies are the ones that have sure they're successful and they're profitable and they 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 have a great business plan and they have a great strategy and there's all all the right buzzwords but they also have a good soul and the companies that have the have strong souls are generally strong companies so if if you find that for instance in your work situation you don't feel comfortable sharing the philosophies or the ideas that you have what are some of the strategies that you can do as as an individual for instance to be able to get those ideas out what would you suggest yeah, it's really challenging. So we've seen this sometimes with clients in the past where they work at an organization that isn't necessarily open or receptive to, to new ideas. And on the one hand, you could say, well, I'm going to vote with my feet and leave. Um, but that the reality is that not everyone has the privilege or the ability to leave. And that's really challenging. Um, so when you're working in a place that might feel a bit uh, buttoned up, and perhaps a bit closed-minded, um, maybe it maybe it is worth setting up a long-term plan to transition and and move elsewhere or move into another department or division. Uh, that's one option. Um, and another option is there has to be others, peers uh, that with whom you work or perhaps in parallel organizations that you can have conversations with who are who you know might not be your manager. Or they might not be somebody who can enact change. Um, 
tomorrow, but there's somebody that would be uh, a receptive pair of ears. And this can be a coworker, this can be a friend who works maybe in another industry. And, you know, maybe it's an after hour, uh, you know, trip to the bar or just some sort of conversation where you feel as though you can still engage in that dialogue. Because the difficult thing about organizational culture is that people think that it's set in stone, that it's some inherent force of the universe that company X is, oh, they're the, for example, Google is sort of this innovative t-shirt wearing company. Well, that's not a, a, a force of nature. That's because the people that work there set the tone of that culture. And so it's up to every individual who works for an organization to set the tone of that organization. Um, we were working with somebody la- uh, last year and they kept on telling us, they said, oh, what is the company going to think if I do this? What is the company going to think if I do that? And they were an executive and they said, you know, kept saying these types of phrases. And finally, at one point we stopped them and said, hey, you are the company, <laughs> you know, it's not the, the company doesn't think anything. You're the company is, it doesn't exist without you. And so, um, it's important to know that as an individual, you have responsibility to enact positive change and you can enact positive change. You, you can, you, if you believe that, like William James, a pragmatist would say, you know, uh, if in the first step to having free will is believing that you have it. Um, but if you, you know, if you're in a situation where you can't necessarily, uh, have that conversation with your boss. It's still probably possible for you to have a conversation with a peer or even a friend after hours just to continue to get the wheels turning. You mentioned some great names there and William James, the pragmatist. I'd love to dive a little bit into that because I always believe, you know, from my personal viewpoint, I'm a very pragmatic person. You know, a spade's a spade. What's the problem here? Let's go on and dig the hole and let's get the job done. And I often find in business now these days, the pragmatist is very much kind of overshadowed by the theorist, you know, the, the person that's putting the ideas up there, the great, you know, PowerPoints, you know, the fact that we're doing these great figures, but nobody seems to get the job done. Where's the disconnect in business these days between these two <laughs> extremes? Um, I, so I don't know. I would say that in my experience in working before, even before I started the company, uh, there definitely was a lot of talk and not so much do. I, I did see that. And I wondered where, you know, where does the sausage get made? I remember sitting there sometimes at my desk thinking, how did the company get the money to pay for this desk? Because right now I'm not seeing any sales activity. I'm not seeing any sort of behavior that would be, uh, um, uh, for generating a generating profit. So you can question, you know, what, what's the difference between do and think and act and how do you, um, how do you navigate those waters? I think, I mean, look, generally speaking from a corporate hierarchy structure, the newer you are to the organization, the more you do. And the, the higher you are in the organization, the less you do, but the more you think and set policy and set agenda and uh, strategy and sort of big picture items. So um, that's probably how the the work cookie crumbles. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all doers and we're all thinkers and we're all responsible for both. And um, it's important. Yeah, I, I, I love William James in that it, you have to just believe yourself capable of enacting change in order to act, enact change. If you don't believe yourself capable of doing it, then you probably won't. You're halfway through listening to On the Track, myself, David Wilson, and my guest, Ryan Steltzer. And I wanted to focus on Ryan's background before he embarked on his journey through philosophy. Who were the philosophers that helped him get clarity? And also, we touched upon the Republic and Play-Doh, and how that could have influenced the Boeing 737 MAX disaster. (music) 
Okay, I'm going to change tact a little bit here because I'd love to dive down and because people have great backgrounds. And, you know, I imagine when you were at school, at, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, going in junior high or something like that. Did you ever imagine you were going to be in this business, you know, of, of the strategy of mind and fixing problems or helping people to solve problems in business like this? Never. No, I, I, I still don't think that I do. Um, when I was, uh, when I was in school, it was, uh, I, I would never even envision this sort of career or what I was, what I'm doing now at all. It, it truly was just a, a series of accidents and, um, I, I wound, the only reason why I studied philosophy in college was because I, uh, we got the, it was the last year that they actually did physical books where you could select your major. Now everything's online, of course, but we got the physical course book and they listed all the majors. And I went down and I started at A and I saw art history and I thought, oh, I could study that for four years. That's pretty cool. And then I got down to H and I saw history and I thought, well, that's bigger than art history. So I could probably study a little bit of art history and then get a wider macro perspective. And then I got down to P and I saw philosophy and I thought, wait a minute, philosophy, that's, that's a little bit of history. That's a little bit of ideas and how to think. And I thought that's the only thing on this list I could study for four years and um, selected it and never looked back. That's an incredible story. So Kind of looking at philosophy, did you have a clear idea about what philosophy was before you studied it in depth at university? Or did you just have a surface feel of some of the philosophers in history and how they kind of affected people's lives? So how did you get a perspective on philosophy? I didn't really, I had never engaged with philosophical texts prior to university. It wasn't my high school. They did offer philosophy classes. I did not take any. Um, so I had, I had no idea who Socrates was or Plato or, you know, some of the, some of the uh, sort of your core thinkers. Um, and when I went in, my first class was intro to ancient philosophy. And, uh, the professor said, okay, um, we're going to start with the Republic, which is not exactly the easiest book to start with. Um, but he said, we're going to start with the Republic and I want you to go home, read book one and highlight whatever you think is important. And I remember I came back and I said, told the story before, but it's, I came back with a coloring book. I just thought, oh my gosh, every single line here is, is a, this is incredible nugget of information and wisdom. And I was hooked from book one of the Republic. And that never, that, that was like, that's, that sold me. What do you think inspired you? What, what were the kind of lessons you were learning from history? Well, I, what was so interesting to me about the Republic was that here was this guy, I mean, of course, written by Plato, it tells the story of Socrates. So Socrates didn't write anything down, but he's telling the, telling the story about, um, effective government out. He was asking questions in a way that I didn't think were possible. To, I didn't know that it was okay to go to a public space and ask these questions. I thought it would be dangerous to go to a public. And it turned out for Socrates, it was in fact dangerous to do that. But I just thought, oh, how interesting to have these sort of big picture questions um, discussed uh, with a group of, of just everyday folks. And these were questions that I, I, I had had, you know, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be just? What 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 are these concepts? What does it mean? And to be able to just you know hang out with your pals downtown and say, hey bud, what do you think it means to be just? Um, it's probably you to know your friends pretty quickly. But I just thought it was fascinating that these guys would be able to have these conversations in such an intriguing way. And I also, of course, the competitive part of me loved the fact that Socrates always got the better of them. Uh, now, of course, it was written, so it's it's a bit scripted, and I, I know that that might not be exactly how the conversation went. But it was like reading an Agatha Christie mystery. Like, how is he going to get to the t to the bottom of this here? And then you see him sort of go through the maze and un unravel the uh, the puzzle for these people. And uh, just he was just a brilliant thinker, and I love to see him outsmart people. And I thought that was really fun to watch. 
What what other philosophers give us that great navigational map from history? What are the other people that really stand out in your opinion? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so I would. That's a really good question. I don't think anyone was better than Plato writing about Socrates as far as the navigational map. There's uh, that that I mean, as as Whitehead said, the, the entirety of Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato, and that's that's ultimately true. But. The person that I really became attached to um, when I was in graduate school and even undergrad uh, was this guy, F.P. Ramsey, who was a philosopher at Cambridge in the early 20th century. He died very young. He had a mysterious medical condition, um, and he had contributed to economics, political science, philosophy. I mean, he had just – his he, he ran – this, this, he, he ran the gamut of, of intellectual enterprise. And I remember I was sitting in class one day with this, uh, uh Finnish philosopher, Jaco Hintzika, who was this, um, revered, uh, 20th century philosopher, logician, who was buddies with Wittgenstein, sort of a crazy background. And we were talking in class and he said, genius is a really romantic term. And I can tell you that there were only a few geniuses of the 20th century. And one of them was F.P. Ramsey. And no one has ever heard of him. No one knew who he was. And so I immediately went home and looked up F.P. Ramsey and started reading about him. And I think what really intrigued me about F.P. Ramsey was that he was the first guy, modern guy that I saw who worked outside of philosophy itself. So when you, you know, Socrates, of course, covered diverse topics, whether it's law or business and, he, and government, and he had really wide ranging topics. But generally speaking, every philosopher that I had read up to that point was speaking about philosophy itself or talking about a subject of philosophy itself. F.P. Ramsey took philosophy and applied it to other traditions and, and other schools of thought. He applied philosophy to economics. He applied philosophy to mathematics. He applied it. And I saw him straddling these worlds. And I thought, oh, this guy's unbelievable. That's that's a really interesting point you make because it's already talking about the theory. And again, it's about being a pragmatist, isn't it? It's about bringing that and applying it to different environments. And that very nicely brings us back to the type of business you're in because you have a, a philosophy within the business of the kind of the one, two, three approach. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So with our strategic planning, you know, there's, there's you, you just Google how to create a strategic plan and there are, and there's no shortage of, of links out there about what's the best way to do it. And we tried to really simplify strategic planning for companies. And we said, you know, look, ultimately, strategic planning is an exercise of uh, how do we get to where we're going with what we have and what we need. And then you just you boil it down. What, you know, one, two, three, this one, two, three process of, um, of answering one question, then getting into two and then getting into three. Um, and that sort of one, two, three step um an exercise helps companies sort of uh, simplify the strategic planning process. Um, it's not overly complex. It's not overly convoluted. I think as long as you focus on really the the that simple question of well, geez, what 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 are we trying to get to? Well, you know, uh, how do we get there? What do we have? What do we need? Um, you know, that sort of idea. So that's the one question. And then you know, the one, two, three. Um, so how do we get to where we're going with what we have and what we need? Uh, step two is, you know, in order to do that, two things have to happen. Uh, leadership really has to be in total agreement as to the company's objectives, and the organization has to be prepared to act upon that strategy. Um, and then three, um, you know, you have three phases of strategic planning. You articulate the goals, 
you assess the actions to achieve those goals, and then you empower human capital to uh, carry out the actions. Because that's, look, a strategic plan is just um, fluff if you don't have the, the resources or the ability to, to act upon it. Well, and that's, uh, again, another very good point, because often as not, you know, I've personally experienced, you've personally experienced, so we get into a company and they, what's our goals and objectives? And it's very kind of woolly. It's, it's kind of, they're trying to think of things that are really, they're pulling it out of the air. And often as not, the goals and objectives, they're already living. That's the point, isn't it? Absolutely. And people don't realize that. So do you find that happens a lot when you do go into companies that you've already got the answers in front of you? My favorite, favorite, favorite thing to do is um, I. So I we have this sort of uh, perf- we have this this performance cube that we develop that really talks about sort of what are the what are the core elements of a high performing organization, and I print it out and I have a copy for everybody in the workshop and I turn it face down on the table and I hand it out to everybody. I say, don't flip this over until we're done. And then we go around the room and I ask a series of, act, you know, of, of open-ended questions, engage in active inquiry, and I have them go through, um, you know, what do you think it's going to take for this strategic planning exercise to be successful? What are the key, what are the key pieces need to be in place? And they always list the same things that I have written down in the paper. And I say at the end, like a magician, okay, now turn your papers over. And they've had the answer there right in front of them the entire time. And it's just, it's, it's helping people. That's, I, I, I think, you know, one of the, the, faults of consulting is that consultants come in and say we know better than you do and it's important as a philosopher to say you know nothing and um, as a philosophical consultant if you will um, when we go into companies i think um, we go in with the mindset of you know this better than we do of course you know this better than we do i'm not an accounting expert i'm not a legal expert you know this stuff way better than i do but i can help you think through it um, and that's you know, helping you extract the nuggets, the carrots of information that you need. That's that's where we come in. I think I heard somebody quote the other day: "Mystery is really easy, clarity is extremely difficult." Extremely, extremely, extremely difficult. Whenever we go into a company and I ask someone what their job is or what they do, the longer their answer the more I know that they don't actually understand what they do. If they can give me that clear, concise response of, oh, well, my role is this, I do this, great. Then you have a pretty you have a pretty firm footing about what you do. But if you start rambling on and on about all these different responsibilities and I do a lot of things and, you, you know, I know that maybe, that's, maybe it's not as clear to you as what your role actually is. And that's when we, you know, get in the role chartering exercise. But anyway, so it's, it's yeah, the, the, if you can explain something simply and clearly, then you fully understand it. Why do you think human beings have difficulty in doing that? You know, is it, is it just an innate fact that we like to tell stories? It's just built into our DNA? Or do you think it's just that we feel pressurized and we've got to come up with an answer? Is it sometimes better to say, I don't know? I have never met a business person that said, I don't know. Uh, that's not so that is not in the lingo of business. I remember when I was studying for consulting case interviews, there's a, a popular book of, that I will not name, but there's a popular book that prepares aspiring consultants for the case study process and you go in and you, you know, you do your case prep and, uh, in the book, it firmly, firmly advocated for, for, um, applicants to lie in their interviews. If they didn't know the answer to a question, it was, you need to fake it till you make it. You need to pretend that, you know, even if you had the wrong number or the wrong calculation, you need to stick with that number at all costs. You do not give in, you do not give up. You push that number. And I'm reading this coming out of philosophy thinking, this is the exact opposite of everything I just learned. 
Um, and so consulting and business more generally, there is this idea that I need to either know or pretend to know. And if I don't know, I'm an idiot. I'm going to get fired. They're, people are going to think I'm dumb. And look, we all have these sort of um, issues in self-confidence, but it's really bad in the business world when um, you have people who are making billion dollar decisions pretending that they're right, if even if they know their calculation is wrong or off. That's the uh, the typical runaway train, isn't it? You're on board, it's off, and you can't get off. That's can't the thing, isn't it? Can't get off. But it, you can get off. That's the, I mean, that's that's the thing is you can. You just admit, geez, we're going in the wrong direction here. Um, and having the courage to say that and the conviction to say that is tough. I mean, but again, talk about psychological safety. You have to have the courage to say to your team, if you're the manager, or even if you're not the manager, even worse, you say it to the manager gee, I think we're heading in the wrong direction here. Now, good luck with that. That's a tough conversation to have. But the best bosses, the best managers, the best leaders are going to be the ones that are open to that feedback and open to that idea. Even if the employee isn't right, they might not be right. Maybe you are headed in the right direction and you know better. Maybe that's possible. But to be able to say that is the key to, to growth and um, flourishing. A lot of people understand this. And I've, they've said, I've said it so often in business life that everything is on the other side of fear. Absolutely. Go through, be fearless get to the other side and then does clarity appear at that stage do you think once you can get rid of fear or it helps to get clarity if clarity doesn't appear comfort does at least and you're you've you you might not have reached the solution just yet um but you're feeling probably far more comfortable and confident that you will get there one one of these days i think about for you know the the, the tragic example of boeing i mean they were just heading down the wrong track with the max aircraft and it was going down the wrong path for years. And uh, we wrote, a, or we have a book coming out next year, and we wrote about this in our book. And not to give too much away in the book, but they were they were going down this. Uh, well, we're gonna we're gonna stick with it or else. And 346 people died. That's I mean, the worst case scenarios when you have um, uh, these tragedies occur as a result of this kind of thinking. But this sort of uh, stick to itiveness. Uh, that mindset of, well, can't get off the train, it's going down the tracks, can't get off, um, is is hurting companies. Very much so. And I totally agree with you. I'd like to bring you back. You did mention something about case studies earlier on, and you guys have done quite an interesting case study called Four. I think it was the four-day week. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, so we were contacted by this company in London called The Mix, and they are this really innovative sort of groundbreaking company that operates in London. Um, they do marketing work and uh, strategic work, and, and it's, a, it's a great organization, and we had been connected uh, to them uh, through a colleague in London who um, said, hey, they're, they're actually interested in doing a four-day work week. And what do you think about that? Would you be interested in doing a little bit of a case study and a, a report on that uh, and helping them think through it? And so we did. We produced the report uh, a couple of years ago. And it was fascinating to see the outcome and the result of, of their initiative. So they said to their employees, look, we're going to move away from the five-day work week. We're going to go into a four-day work week. We're still going to keep the hours the same. Um, but uh, let's see what happens. And yeah, productivity soared, sick days went way down, um, all of the things that you would expect. I remember there was a HR executive at a large financial services company uh, working in Boston who actually tried to push for a three-day work week at the company. Uh, this is about five years ago because she was, she had a good point. She said, look, we work eight hour days now, five days a week. 
everyone is on their phone probably an hour or two before they get to work in the morning while they're having breakfast at home. They're on their phone or their laptop when they get home from work, when they're sitting there on their couch or at their kitchen table. So really, we're pushing 60 hours a week, uh, working five days a week. So why don't we convert over to a three-day work week where um, everyone has to be in the office on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then the other days you can sort of, you flex in and out and you're, uh, you're only responsible for being there, um, 12 hours for three days a week and you come out to be about 36 and then you're obviously the extra hours that you put in before and after. So everyone's going to be covering 40 hours, no question, but that got vetoed. That got shot down. Um, right. I mean, it didn't even get, get lift off. She had the courage to say it and share the idea. It was a very innovative and creative idea. Um, but what they did compromise on was having a more flexible policy with, um, four days on site, one day could be remote, you know, that sort of thing. And now with COVID, I, I think the remote work is, is, is if, if not the way of the future, it will certainly be a, a significant part of the way of the future. I would not want to be in the commercial real estate space, uh, over the next 10 years. But the one thing about a philosophy or people about speaking up and putting their ideas out there is that we're not always, we don't always get the end result necessarily, but we can get a, a change. Is that what we're looking at with philosophy and applying it to the workplace? I think you're getting a deeper understanding through philosophy. Um, if you understood uh, one tenth of a problem, hopefully philosophy allows you to understand more of the iceberg of what that problem might actually be. Um, it can help bring about clarity. Absolutely. Um, but really it's a, it's a method. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's philosophy is a strategy. Um, it is a way to engage in business in, in a, in a, in a different way. Um, and I think it's a way that will, as evidenced by the books I read, it's a, it's a way that can really outsmart your competitors by doing it. So tell us again, some of the practical things that you can do from your perspective, a strategy of mind and how you can help businesses out there really get clarity and get on the right road to, to the sort of strategy that's really going to help them as a business. Well, one thing we have found um, when we're having a conversation with a company, it's very difficult if the person who discovers us is not necessarily somebody who has decision-making authority to bring us on board. So we have a lot of enthusiasm from folks who might be uh, junior manager or middle managers, but ultimately, you know, uh, we, we have to have a conversation with somebody who has what we call power of the purse, you know, somebody who can bring us on board. Um, but what we have found is that when we have conversations with um, leaders who are who who are innovators, who are free thinkers, and who are looking for the the uh, the the next best thing, or who are trying to figure out how to get ahead and and whatever they can do to beat their competition, those conversations are are the ones in which we really thrive because we can offer something that um, most companies don't take advantage of. And so, what we're trying to do is help. Um, you know, if, if companies have an arsenal uh, of tools at their disposal, we're trying to give them one more that's a pretty significant weapon that they can use, at the, you know, to, to, to grow personally and to grow as an organization. And if anybody would like to get in contact with you, Ryan, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, email and website, I imagine you have, if you'd like to let us know what those are. So our website is www.strategyofmind.com. And there are plenty of, of, of links on the site to get in touch. The easiest one, we have a form on the site. You can also just send us an email, coaches at strategyofmind.com. Perfect. And do you have a, an email address that you want to give out as well, which you'd be happy to share with the audience? 
Sure, absolutely. If you'd like to reach me, it's very easy. It's ryan at strategyofmind.com. Great. That's absolutely perfect. And so just one more thing before we go, um, where can people actually see you as well in terms of, I know you've done the TED Talks. I know you've got a book in the in the in kind of the pipeline. So maybe talk about where you maybe your TED Talk is and maybe your book as well, what the name of that would be. So the book is actually, the title is TBD. We had the title change because of COVID. We had a, we had a, a title in place that was set. And when coronavirus um, uh, took hold and sort of reoriented our lives this past year, um, we decided to change the title um, and it has not been released yet. So I'm going to keep that uh, keep that quiet for now. But I can tell you that the book is about these, this issue of um bottom line thinking being uh, the, the be all end all for business and how it's sort of misguided professional life over the last um, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and what we can do to change that. So how to engage in active inquiry and how can we all be responsible, um, active agents of change um, through, through, uh, through dialogue. So that's the, that's the premise of the book, but it will be coming out next year uh, under Hachette, uh, the public affairs imprint with Hachette. Uh, will be available uh, wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you know what have you, and then uh, all, and definitely independent bookstores. Please check out your independent bookstore locally if you can support them, especially during COVID. Um, and then uh, the, for the TED Talk, uh, to, it was a TEDx TED delivered. You can look on YouTube. Just Google my name, Ryan Stelzer, um, TED. Uh, it's also on our website, and we have all of our articles um, linked as well under our uh, on our website as we publish with Harvard Business Review and Washington Post and, and a number of other outlets. So we're uh, for uh, all of our contents online. That's fantastic. One final question. And I um, I actually learned this from a great colleague of mine, Jennifer Glatz. She runs a business which is called Pro Collaborating. And she says, you know, if you're 18 years uh, old again, what would you tell yourself? What would you say to yourself as an 18-year-old about going into business and going into study? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, you know, don't, don't, don't just accept things as they are. I think that's the, the my, when I first went in, I, I thought, um, I had the very, very much the Kool-Aid mindset of, okay, we need to, you know, do just, just do what you're told head down. Um, don't ask questions. And I think don't, don't, don't be afraid to ask questions. The great philosophy in comes out. The philosopher is always there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tragedy and it's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse, I suppose. Ryan, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and taking some time out of your busy day. It's been really appreciated. And thanks again. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, David. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest today was Ryan Stelzer, co-founder of Strategy of Mind, strategic planning for companies who care. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.